Jack, Levi, the book club from hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with the book club from hell, a World War I reenactment collective responsible for the most accurate recreations of the Somme and, as such, an internationally wanted organisation owing to a number of heavy artillery mishaps. This episode is on Storm of Steel, a book based on Ernst Junger's diaries from the First World War, published in German in 1920, being translated into English in 1929. What makes Storm of Steel so interesting is, beside its literary merits, the ambivalence Junger shows regarding the war. He doesn't always like it, but he doesn't hate it either. It's a very ambivalent work. As well as this, Ernst Junger might be the craziest person I've ever heard of. Born in Heidelberg in 1895, he signed up to the French Foreign Legion as a teenager because he was bored and wanted to fight. Having been brought back to Germany, he then volunteered to fight in World War I on August 1, 1914. He fought in the Battle of the Somme, Cambrai, in Ypres, and in many other battles, being wounded 14 times, then, after the war, wrote out against the Weimar Republic, wrote out against the Nazis, and after World War II, wrote increasingly mystical novels, took LSD with Albert Hoffman, won numerous literary prizes, had an entomology prize named after him, and finally died at the age of 102 in 1998. Before we start, if you like what we're doing on this podcast, we've got a Patreon, we've got a Discord, we've got a Twitter that I should be using to spread the good word about this podcast, but keep forgetting to. Anyway, links to all those things are in the show notes. Now, I want to apologise in advance for my audio quality in this episode. Something went wrong with my mic during recording, I'm not sure what, so I sound pretty distorted. Anyway, if you're ready to understand how war can function as an inner experience, then listen on. Enjoy. Guten Tag, mate. Guten Tag. Oh, Guten Tag. Did I ever mention, did I ever mention that I speak German? <laughs> yeah, fluent. Yeah, not only do I speak German, but I speak it really well. I've, I've been a, told many times that I'm highly multilingual. Accent, yeah. <laughs> highly as multilingual. As multilingual as all other Australians. <laughs> yeah, so I speak half a language. I almost speak English. So in advance, I need to apologise for my mispronunciations of basically every foreign word in this book. Ever. Yeah. yeah, I should also. I mean, I should apologise yeah. for my pronunciation of English words as well. I just apologise for everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, this was a really good book. What did you think of it, actually? Um, it was. Uh, I found it weirdly good. <laughs> I didn't really know what to expect going in, but he's a he's a very good writer. I wouldn't say it was pleasant to read, or even. F- even interesting in parts, it can be highly monotonous, which is artistically important, I think. That, like, a criticism I make of well, many books on this podcast is that they're really boring and monotonous. And this book is very monotonous in places, but not boring, or at least it's meaningfully monotonous. Yeah, I guess I found that because it would just, at times, well, uh, They'd start getting shelled or something, and then all of a sudden go from like boring to like now there's a battle scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't too bad. <laughs> Plus, I, I actually found like some of the periods of time where he was speaking about some of the more boring stuff to be actually like quite insightful about 
mm-hmm. the actual mm-hmm. experiences of of soldiers in in the First World War, um, like how much of their time was actually engaged, just like hunkering down, getting rained on, being cold. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was probably a. Majority of the time, <laughs> just being getting cold shelled. and waiting. Getting shelled seems just continuous. Yeah. Even in the more but- sedate parts of the book, <laughs> every, every now and then an artillery shell will just land in someone's house and kill a few people. Crazy. So maybe we should just preface this with uh, what we were saying before we started recording, which was um, there's, I think there's seven editions, fact check us on that, um, and the first two or three were fairly unedited. Perhaps the first was even just the mm. raw diary content. And then at some point, I think the fourth edition, and then uh, the fourth edition or something like that, they started like censoring it quite a lot or editing it, like be like they took a really heavy hand editorially to it. I think I found one of the editions where it's not his diary, just direct diary entries, but like um, it is very gory. So apparently in the later versions, they took out a lot of the gore. And yeah. But mm. it was it was really good the version that I read, but I think I try and get an even earlier version. Yeah, we should probably mention what this book is. So, Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger is Ernst Junger's diaries from the First World War. So he fought through basically the entirety of the First World War. I think he enlisted as a volunteer for Germany. I think on the first of August, nineteen fourteen, like extremely early on. And survived the entire war. And he was in, it's not that he didn't see action. He was in some really gnarly places. He was in the Somme. He was at Cambrai. Yeah. So we should note he, uh, he was awarded, he was, he was wounded 14 times. The guy like yeah. had a fucking death wish and like this somehow yeah, yeah. didn't have it fulfilled despite just being in the most dangerous situations. And he was awarded, uh, this uh, it's like the iron wound or something like he was given two awards one for his service after the war with like golden medal but one during the war just because he kept on getting wounded <laughs> sent, kept on sending him back yeah, he got he got the iron cross and he got the yeah the iron and cross. i apologize in advance for my french paul merite i don't know something like that perfect it's- some Perfect. some frog word. <laughs> the it was the highest the highest military honors awarded in the um I think awarded in Germany at the time. And yeah, he won that. That's how the book ends. Actually, he just gets that award after he's been injured for the millionth time, and the yeah. book just concludes. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it was inter- it was really interesting to read um a German perspective of the First World War. I don't know a huge amount about the First World War. Like the stuff that I learned about tended to be about the Second World War when I was younger and a morbid fascination of the Second World War. Mm. Um, yeah. I've played and, enough Battlefield 1 yeah. that I feel like I'm, I'm pretty sold on the First <laughs> World <expert>. War. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm basically an expert. I've pretty much been there. <laughs> yeah. And, it turns uh, out actually a lot of the combat was spawn camping. That was a really important technique. <laughs> uh, it, it actually was. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what trench warfare is. That's what that's what dice were trying to simulate. <laughs> Battlefield one with spawn camping. It's the experience of trench warfare. <laughs> You're just waiting and waiting. Oh, we see something. Shoot it. <laughs> Shoot yeah, it. Now we're getting shell shelled. Shell, shell, shell the fuck out of it. So yeah, much of this episode, book. I expect, is going to be us talking about Ernst Junger's life as well, because this this guy was fucked. 
he lived the most <laughs> absurd, absurd <laughs> life. <laughs> it's it's kind of unbelievable that people like this have existed, but it's younger by all accounts did exist and <laughs> just, just the most it's not just uh, it's like tom bombadil except he's a german lieutenant or something in the first world war <laughs> yeah but I, I skipped all the tom bombadil parts of lord of the rings but i liked <laughs> i liked reading it uh ernst junger's diaries <laughs> yeah they were the strange parts ernst junger does more than just appears and starts singing to people <laughs> which does seem to be tom bombadil's whole thing he's got um he's got a number of books so he's got he's got several books um, oh, he was prolific. I, uh, the Hammer. In terms of just a little bit of, well, we'll probably have quite a bit of biography of this guy in this episode, but he was born in Heidelberg, southwest Germany, of course named after the suburb of, suburb Heidelberg in Melbourne. It's a very famous place. He was born there in 1895. This guy lived to be 102, <laughs> which is pretty wild. That's absolutely insane. Considering insane. the punishment <laughs> this guy's body went through. <laughs> and from really early on in his life, he just wanted to fight. He had quite a wealthy upbringing. I think his dad was quite a well-off chemist. And he went and joined the French Foreign Legion, which was c- completely illegal in Germany. But anyway, he went and did that. I think he deserted during training and was captured and brought back. And eventually he was brought back to Germany and his dad spent quite a bit of money politically intervening to stop young Ernst going to prison for joining the Legion of a foreign country. Did he join the French Foreign Legion before World War I? Yeah, before World War I because he was, I don't know, there wasn't enough war in his life. He was just totally cooked from like, yeah. Yeah, so he went off and joined the French Foreign Legion when he was a teenager. Then when he was 19, right at the start of the First World War, he basically got back home from the French Foreign Legion and just joined the German military so he this could go and crazy. fight in World War One. Guy's crazy. And Storm of Steel is about his time in the First World War. And at least for now, we'll skip over that part because the rest of this episode is just going to be about his, his time in the First World War. But fuck this guy. So his first book was Storm of Steel, which were his based on his diaries from the First World War. He wrote so many books after that, and not just not just diaries, but also novels. He was an entomologist as well. So apparently, in when he was fighting trench warfare in 1917 on patrol, he would collect beetles and like label the specimens. While he was while he was also fighting a war, yeah, we can't. He, he's an he's an entomologist. There's yeah, a, there's a prize <laughs> named after him. An entomolo- there's an entomology yeah. prize, <laughs> and he talks about it and he mentions it every now and then in the book. Yeah, there's an entomology prize named after him. This guy won an Iron Cross, a bunch of military medals. He won the Goethe Prize. This guy's just ridiculous. Yeah, he. In the Weimar Republic, after the First World War, he he became more famous as an author. He wrote quite a few books critical of the Weimar Republic, quite a few books highly critical of democracy. And then, when the when the Nazis appeared, 
of course, someone like Junger was like catnip to Nazis because he was a decorated war hero, known to be genuinely extremely brave in combat, a well-regarded author, quite an authoritarian thinker. But because Ernst Junger is basically what people who describe themselves as Sigma males wish that they were. Is truly a base Sigma male. <laughs> he also just refused the Nazis overtures. So they, they offered yeah, him a yeah. seat in the, <laughs> the Reichstag and he said no. They, he refused <laughs> to become a party member. He started writing things that were critical of the Nazis. I think he, he quit quite a well-respected... Oh, no, he refused to join literary societies that were associated with the Nazis. He, he and his brother left a veterans association when it kicked out its Jewish members. What a complex and interesting person. He was eventually yeah. dismissed from the military. So he served in the Second World War as well on the side of the Nazis and was an off, largely an officer in occupied Paris where he spent most of his time talking to Parisian intellectuals and reading like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and entomology textbooks and journals. He was peripherally implicated in a plot to kill Hitler, which is what got him dismissed mm. from the army. Mm. And <laughs> this guy was just, he's just, he's done everything. After the war, he was, um, there was some suspicion that he was a fellow traveler with the Nazis, but given that he wrote a number of books during, like, I think it was in 1939, he wrote a novel on the Marble Cliffs, which was a thinly veiled attack on Nazism. But then because this guy is the true Sigma male, not only was he speaking out against the Nazis when the Nazis were in power, but then after the war, he refused to say openly that books like On the Marble Cliffs were against Nazism. When he was asked if that was a, an anti-Nazi book, he just said, oh, it can be read in many different ways. He just, he just would not cooperate with anyone. He was just out there for just himself. Complete, complete recalcitrant. <laughs> he just, <laughs> just didn't give a fuck. I suppose if you've been shot 14 times and, like, survived just the hellfire of of the Western Front, you probably can just walk around just just thinking both like... Both world wars. Not just one. He survived both world wars as a soldier. Both world wars. Yeah, and, and like... Oh, did he fight in World War II? I thought he was imprisoned. No, so he... He, he did fight. was in combat very briefly in the Second World oh, okay. War. I think he yeah. he was awarded a medal in the Second World War for for saving a wounded soldier or getting right, them right. somewhere safe. Can yeah. you fucking imagine that? So you, you make it through the entire First World War, and this guy really saw a lot of combat in the First World War. And then another World War starts, and you're like, oh, I guess we're back here, and immediately starts risking his life in that. That's so crazy. Having, having repeatedly baited the totalitarian party in control of your country by writing <laughs> works critical of them. And as the war went on, his works became less and less veiled in their criticism of Nazism as well. <laughs> yeah, and then after the like... war, refusing to say that your books were critical of the Nazis, just saying, oh, they can be interpreted in many ways. <laughs> this guy's... <laughs> he yeah, does oh, seem he... to be deeply self-absorbed. Maybe he, like, he was just out for himself. 
he he was awarded the Goethe Prize. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, I got the Goethe Prize. Goethe, yeah, the Goethe Prize, which is pretty pretty amazing. Like the guy was a was a just a a true Giga Chad, <laughs> like an actual bona fide Giga Chad. Yeah, he like, really was literary prodigious and also war war hero for you know depending on your point of view, the wrong side, but war hero nonetheless. <laughs> we'll get into his politics around the war because that was one of the most interesting parts of Storm of Steel, that I, it, the politics are just not mentioned. No, war he doesn't go this, into the politics. Really war is all. this all-encompassing thing distinct from any political consideration. It is, it is just this elemental force. He's got a book that I want to read. Um, as a, so, two books that I would be. Oh, is this war? War is an inner experience. Yeah, that one looks really interesting. And then there's another one. Yeah, I, I'm gonna fuck up the pronunciation of this, but I think it's pronounced uh, Umersville. Umersville. Is that the one where he proposes the idea of the anarch? Yeah. As this. Um, yeah, that one. Yeah, looks yeah, really yeah, interesting. yeah. I want to read that. Having read this and read about his life. There are a number of this guy's books that I want to read. Yeah, we could do another one if, like, if people want. We could do another. I'd be open to doing another one of his books because he's just such an interesting dude, like of a completely different. Yeah, yeah. War is an inner experience. I think would fit this podcast well because it's it's quite extreme by all accounts. Then there was someone <laughs> on our Discord server who really, really recommended on the Marble Cliffs, and I'll probably I'll read that anyway, and whether we do an episode on it or not. Uh, but yeah, that that can happen or not, depending on what people want. But yeah, there have only been a handful of authors that we've read for this podcast that after the episode, I've gone on to read a number of their books. Mishima, after after doing an episode on him, I read a few of his novels. And yeah, Ernst Junger, I expect I'm going to read more of his works because this he is the true, the elemental Sigma male. I used to think that Sigma male was just a stupid bullshit made up term, but Ernst Junger actually is the Sigma male. It's just, unless you're the sort of person who has been in the First World War since 1914 and in 1917 you're on patrol in a fucking trench and you're collecting entomological specimens and labelling them, you are not a true Sigma male. That is what Sigma male behaviour is. Sigma male behaviour is fighting in a war, having repeatedly poked Nazis in the eye and you're still fighting because you like fighting, writing books against the Nazis, then after the war, not telling the winning side that you were writing books about the Nazis, but starting to play coy and saying that your books could be interpreted in many ways, then going and just basically living as a hermit in West Germany and writing increasingly mystical novels, taking LSD with with Hoffman, (laughs) getting fried on mescaline, Unless you're doing that, you're not a Sigma male. Ernst Junger can call himself a Sigma male, and I will accept it. Basically, no one else can. I concur. <laughs> like, there's not many people yeah. who can shine a light to that. That's that's definitely up there. Like this guy uh, may, maybe the most maybe uh, like who who else have had a crazy? Who else has had a comparably crazy life? Like maybe Orwell. Orwell had a pretty cooked life. Orwell had a crazy life, but the thing but is... But he, was, he wasn't being active, he just like, yeah. Like, when, when we start talking about Storm of Steel, this is, just, this is just another level. The guy was, like, literally on the front line of hell. 
Yeah, for four <laughs> yes. years. Four years, and he 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 seemed to like it. <laughs> he seemed to like it. It's completely nuts. It's really yeah. So that's one of the most interesting parts of of Storm of Steel. He's he's quite different to Remark, for example, in that like this book's not. So I've heard this book characterized by several people as, well, some people say it's a Nazi book, which is completely fucking stupid. It like clearly people who say that have not read this book. Some people say it's pro-war, which I also don't think is true. It's not anti-war. I'll say that much. It's ju- it's it's very ambivalent. It's kind of it's weirdly dis- about it's, yeah, ambivalent dispassionate and that's it that's one of the most disturbing things about about this book is that it's very detached as in he'll be describing pure hell talking about how what's at he was because <laughs> of course he was at the, the the somme and he survived at one of the bloodiest battles in human history he was on the front line and he lived yeah we'll talk about how a million, the, a million the artillery people. strikes were so continuous that you just stop hearing anything else. And then you stop hearing the artillery strikes themselves. It's just this feeling of continuous pressure. It's actually rolling thunder. And talking like about ro- just nonstop. Yeah, rolling all the thunder. people around him <laughs> just getting blown up out of nowhere. Or he'll be talking to someone in a trench and they'll just get shot in the head and die while he's talking to them. And it's just so dispassionate. The guy must have been just like completely fucking crazy to talk i want to like watch an interview with him so it was like because interviews with him are really good i've only watched a handful of them it's also because i mean they're almost all in german but uh, just because ernst Junker's stats were all absolutely maxed out he also spoke quite a few languages quite well like french and english and obviously german yeah what do you speak i think he spoke like italian look probably (laughs) <laughs> at, at the very least, German, French, English. I think he spoke a Absolutely. little bit of Dutch because he was uh, in the First World War holidaying there with the German army. Or if, if not in the Netherlands, no, in Belgium. Yeah, so in the, the Dutch-speaking parts of Belgium. This, this guy's life was so crazy. Yeah. About, let's, let's start talking about the book, actually, because <laughs> this... Like he lived, he lived a crazy life, but this was probably the craziest part of his life. It's sort of hard to know how to approach talking about a book like this because it's quite monolithic and monotonous. And when I say that, I don't mean this as a criticism because it's quite important to what I think, at least, the book is trying to convey. There's not really a narrative arc. There's not really a shape to the book or if if there is a shape to the book it's kind of just a square it starts in more or less the same way as it ends <laughs> it's like he square. just <laughs> it's not a parabola he just, it's a square <laughs> no no he just shows up in at training he says oh yeah the war has started i'm 19 i signed up because i he doesn't even say why he signed up actually he just says yeah i signed up and then he appears on a bit behind the front line and starts getting shelled immediately. And then the entire book is basically 
He will say, oh, yeah, we went to this place and we were getting shelled continuously and then we went to the front and got shelled more and then I went to officer training and while we were there, the shelling was not so bad, but still some people got killed in live fire exercises and then I went back to the front and then we kept getting shelled. It's very, it's an interesting combination of, it's it's a monotony of hell because he's in the most hellish conditions. Especially when the weather turns bad, he's he's waist deep in mud, or at some points the mud is so bad that people drown in it. <laughs> like the this this cratered hellscape, artillery shell craters full of mud deep enough for people to drown in. The awfulness of the war is so extreme and so constant that very quickly reading this book you get very numb to it. And part of the reason why I think that that's intentional and not just because he, he couldn't tell a story is because that really does seem to be what he's trying to convey, that you you just grow inured to it very, very quickly. And there are points when emotion breaks through. There's this part of the book where he's he's leading his men because quite quickly he, he became, I don't know the, the exact rank, but of a high enough rank where he's commanding people because he was extremely brave and apparently notably brave, um, they get bunched up in a, in a crater, in a hellscape, and an, an artillery shell just wipes out half of his men. And he'll talk about how he just breaks down and starts weeping in, in, art, in an artillery shell crater in a, a landscape of the same with bullets and shrapnel shells raining down on him and then just pulls himself together and keeps leading his men closer to the front where most of them are going to get killed as well. It's hard to approach a book like this because it's just, it's like turning up the gain on an app to full. It's just so much going on all at once continuously with no light or dark, and then it just ends. This book is, is interesting because it's at once highly monotonous, but also the monotony is pure hell. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's not a fun time, like just living, eking out uh, an existence in between getting bombed. Yeah, it's like shitty food. It's cold. There's basically no narrative arc. It does change somewhat in that he says at at the very beginning of the book, he's still getting used to war, and he talks about how he still jumps when he hears bullets fly past him or when he hears shells approaching, and that also at this stage of the war they're still getting used to mechanized warfare. And so there are many more attempts at charging trenches and things like that, where basically just everyone gets mowed down by machine guns. Yeah, that's one of the really interesting parts of it. Yeah. Yeah, learning to adapt to mechanized warfare. So that idea of, like, uh, you lose the next war with the strategies that won you the last war. I don't know what the exact quote is. There's some pithy saying out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've heard that um I've heard a quote like that. I don't remember it either, but yeah, it's something to that effect. But the strategies that won you the last war will lose the the present one. Yeah, and uh that's <laughs> that's you can see that yeah. transition like first-hand account in um in Jung's writing. It's really interesting because yeah, they do try things like we're just going to run at them without yeah. bayonets and Except pistols. They and have mounted like, machine and they're guns. They're just going to sit there with their heavy machine guns and they're just going to mow us down. <laughs> and the thing, 
And you, you can try that a few times and then eventually you're probably going to get the point. Yeah, but it's interesting too when he's reporting on this. So with other, with other First World War recollections that I've read or watched, there's like oftentimes, highly understandably, there's a real sense of resentment at higher-ups telling whichever soldier wrote um, this recollection to just charge at machine guns. Whereas with Junger, it's just like, he just says, oh, yeah, this happened, and it was exhilarating, and now we're on to the next thing. Like, there's, there's so little... Okay, when I say that there's so little reflection on it, I really don't mean it as a criticism. It's just, it, he's just reporting these intense experiences. In some ways, artistically, that lack of reflectiveness strikes me almost as a device to convey the mindset of someone undergoing experiences that are so intense that you almost can't pass them. There's just such sensory overload that all you can do is live in this extremely acute present. And I'm pretty sure in War as an Inner Experience, he, he elucidates that further. And there are a few points in Storm of Steel where he talks about, I think, midway through the war, mm. when he's gone through, I think it is after the, the Somme, where the fighting, and particularly the artillery bombardment, is so intense that he feels like he's broken through to a new level of experience. He doesn't, he doesn't really go into detail as to what that new experience entails. And I think that is in his, his later works, which is part of the reason why I'd, I'd like to read them and I'm quite interested in reading them. But he does mention that there's, there was some sort of transcendence that he achieved because of the sheer sensory input of, of getting shelled, getting shot at, getting into grenade fights with other bands of enemy soldiers. And I, I would be interested to know some of the details of that transcendent experience. So, yeah, there's that first bit of the war in terms of uh, this book's sort of narrative arc where they're trying to adapt to this new style of mechanised warfare. Then the sort of the second third of the book is just trench warfare and that highly immobile trench warfare that came to at least in the popular imagination, characterised the First World War. And that sounded like pure hell. Actually, just just yeah. hell. Especially when the when you put in, like, chlorine gas as well. Yeah, like, okay, got We gassed. might get blown up. We might get suffocated. We might get gassed. We might get bayoneted. <laughs> it's just pure. Yeah, that, that's got to be one of the worst forms of... Human experience. Of, like, human experience that's ever occurred, right? And... So he's really, it's, it's also just descriptions of when he'll talk about, oh, we're in this trench, and then when it starts raining, we see the archaeological layers of different battles. It starts raining, and the dirt making up the trench will turn to mud, and you just find layers and layers of human bodies or rusted weaponry that you've now built your trench on top of. That Just each battle deposits a new layer of sediment of human lives that you then you then build your trench on top of but it it is so nightmarish it's just beyond yeah. nightmarish and it's like uh fields of bodies that have just been left there because uh like the whichever combatant side wasn't able to like fetch the bodies to bury them so they just left yep. left them 
And so you have just like the bodies are so decomposed. They're just like bones and skulls and yeah, hellish, hell on earth. <laughs> what makes it even more affecting is that he's very good at noting little details, at noting the particular bird life that seems to do well in the, the, the conditions of trench warfare. How he, There are little things like he notes that there, there was a cat that had its front paw blown off that seemed to have been adopted by both sides, by both, I forget if this was when he was fighting the French or the British, but say, yeah, the Germans and either the French or the British trenches had both adopted the cat and it would walk over no man's land between them and no one would shoot at it because it wasn't a human being. It's just so fucked. Or how you know, one Christmas they tried to bring a Christmas tree to the front and the Christmas tree kept getting shot at and they needed to keep getting new people to carry it down because the people carrying it kept getting killed. It It's so surreal. Yeah, and he did a really good job of... um. I, I, it could be because of the amount of Call of Duty I played when I was a kid <laughs> <laughs> that helped me helped me visualize and my uh, like and watching movies like say Private Ryan and stuff. Um, I was able to imagine his extremely vivid with his writing, like the scenes. It really was like reading. Um, reading Call of Duty or something. <laughs> yeah, except he actually did it. Or oh, how the, there would be those times where at night he and some other people, sometimes because they were ordered to, and then later in the war, just because Junger was bored and wanted to do something because he was just so fucking burned out and needed this level of stimulation to feel alive, they would crawl into no man's <laughs> land, like under, under the barbed wire, while artillery shells were falling around to like eavesdrop on the enemy. Or there was a point where he was like, Oh, we just wanted to take some prisoners. We wanted to see if we could get some prisoners. So they just they fucking crawled off. into the <laughs> yeah. enemy trench and Side started quest. looking for people to abduct. And it didn't work out and they started getting shot at. That's right. And then he had to just like sit in a crater in no man's land until morning because he got lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes he just gets shot as well. And he was so matter of fact about his woundings. And there was a there was this crazy one uh where that stood out to me, which was like they had to do some I don't know exactly why they were told to do this, but I can't like I can't remember, but just like uh I don't know, say twenty guys led by Junger and one of the other officers, just like loaded up with grenades, <laughs> hand grenades and stuff, mm. just like run into the trenches over there full of French and just soldiers throw grenades and just, and just throw grenades. <laughs> like essentially he was, he was just like a little ball of chaos <laughs> with a gun and grenades and he would just run around and everybody around him would get blown to pieces and then he would somehow survive. That was regular. And it's, this is an interesting thing that he does emphasize where of course, and this is not just Junger saying this, uh, like other people said it too, Junger was extremely brave in the war, uh, very good under fire, kept his head most of the time. He does note times when he just froze up, which... <laughs> yeah, or burst into tears yeah, or something. burst into tears. Which is fair. Which is a... <laughs> fair enough. Shows yeah, he's a human being, deeply traumatised. He's, he's not just a cyborg. Yeah, extremely deeply traumatised. Um, but... But yeah, also, but he, much he of the time both... when he survived, it was just pure chance. He'd talk about how 
I, I was talking Dumb to luck. someone and they just got shot in the head and so I ducked. And so, okay, an enemy sniper just happened to shoot the person next to him first and not Junger. Or the other person. a shell would explode, like a shrapnel would. shell would explode overhead and a splinter of shrapnel would just pass next to his face and embed itself in a wall behind him. And it's like, oh, I, I just happened to survive that. Or he'd be, t- he'd be taking a shit and then get up and leave. And the place where he was doing it would just get hit by an artillery shell and blow up. And he was like, oh, gee, it was good that I wasn't there. It, there, there are so many moments where he says it was just pure chance that I survived. Or I think it was pure when he was, he was retreating from the front, wounded, and stopped to talk to someone. And the crossroads where he was going to got hit by a shell. And he goes, oh, it was lucky I stopped to talk to that person. Otherwise, I would have been blown to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just complete chaos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, complete chaos. And so I think, yeah, sure, bravery, like definitely uh, a brave or completely crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The difference between crazy and brave is hard to tell. But also just fucking lucky. Just unbelievably lucky. Extremely lucky. lucky. <laughs> Actually, so I'm just looking through my quotes because I took quotes from this book. Here's a really interesting one and something that highlights the, the inconsistency of the war and the, the sheer absurdity and just that it sounds silly to say, but it makes you realize that these are human beings taking part in this. He says, during one stop on the way, a driver split his thumb in the course of crank starting his lorry. The sight of the wound almost made me ill. I've always been sensitive to such things. I mention this because it seems virtually unaccountable that I witnessed such terrible mutilation in the course of the following days. It's an example of the way in which one's response to an experience is actually largely determined by its context. And I bring this up, so when he talks about the terrible mutilation he sees, it truly is terrible mutilation. He sees, getting, he sees people get hit dead on by shrapnel shells and just turned into mincemeat people getting hit by artillery shells, people getting the back of their skull blown out by a sniper's bullet, people having the bottom half of their body blown off by grenades. But it's it like seeing someone split their thumb, crank starting a car, makes them feel really sick. That seemingly random way of responding to situations, or how we, w- we were saying before, Sometimes he'll see people get hit by shells and it just seems to completely wash over him and he doesn't care. And then sometimes he sees it and bursts into tears and just locks up and can't do anything. Sometimes sometimes he'll talk about how he's just killing people, like just mowing people down with a mounted machine gun. This, this guy must have killed a lot of people. And then sometimes he'll talk about how, I think there was, there was there's a point at which they're on an offensive and he shoots a British soldier who was working a piece of artillery. And he says, for the rest of my life, I felt guilty over that and would see him when I tried going to sleep. So that really upset him. But then at other times, he's just killing tons of people with grenades, bullets, stabbing people, and it doesn't really seem to phase him. That's one of the really interesting parts of this book, that it's, it's so human that some things that you feel really should upset you strangely don't and then other things which seem relatively minor just you can't shake them yeah i found that uh it was uh conveying the psychological response yeah 
he was having and I suppose other people must have been having of just um, immense detachment. And I mean, a, a lot of those dudes must have been walking around just like, what's that? Um, what's that idea in in like psychiatry of like dis- dissociation? Yeah, God. like yeah, they must have been yeah, 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 just yeah. switched off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely dissociative. Like they're just getting drunk like every night, and they're even getting drunk as they get ready to go and run onto the fucking. Not even as they're ready to go. Younger talks about. Hiding and in drinking on the field, yeah, like in the <laughs> field. And I know I keep bringing up hiding in craters, Taking- but that's because <laughs> so much of the time, when he's talking about it, all of the battlefields have basically just been turned into a field of craters by continuous artillery bombardment. So the only cover is hiding in a shell hole. So he'll be sitting in yeah. those, just drinking brandy with people while they're reloading and checking their grenades and things. <laughs> so this guy's pissed out of his mind. Basically, continue running around, throwing grenades at at strangers, French people, and English, English English people. And then the, there's this one really interesting. Probably, it, it almost made me tear up. Actually, it was this. Um, it was in a one of the final chapters. He was. Um, they had this big charge, and I think they won this battle. The Germans. Um, the chapter was called the Great Battle or something like that. I can't remember which battle it was about. Um, and. Uh, they're like charging this town or this hamlet, and they've they've pushed out the French and the English, and he they they're like in this massive rage, and they've all gone like full berserker mode, and I he's this, like yeah, walking yeah. up to this one British this one British soldier who's like wounded, and he he's like walking up to him slowly. The guy is like unarmed or something. And he cocks his pistol, like puts it up against the guy's temple, and then like grabs him by like his uh, like his shirt, and and makes note. Oh, he must. He was. He had. I could feel his medal, so he must have been an officer. And then he was. He quiveringly like reached into his jacket coat, and I thought he was going to pull out a gun, but he didn't. He pulled out a photo of him surrounded by his family members, mm. and and I and he's like, I hope that he made it back. To his family, yeah. to his home, and younger doesn't. So shoot he him. like let this doesn't shoot him, and then like he's in this berserk of rage, like just they're literally running into this town just to kill as many people as they can. And then this one guy has this like moment of like human connection. Who knows what happened? That guy probably got blown up by a fucking mortar or something. And at the same time, like Junger's entire purpose of being there is to kill as many yeah, <laughs> as yeah. many people and as he, possible. And he wants to. He wants to kill people. And he wants to. And then so he's not like he must like I, I mean this is why it'd be really cool to watch some interviews but he must have been a very strange complex person. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very complex person. Yeah I I, and, re- uh, imagine- I remember that exact part you're talking about. Yeah it was one really of the most full on. and I agree that was <laughs> a, a very affecting part of the book. For a number of reasons. So obviously, like, just what happened, that moment of humanity. But also, it's Junger said something to the effect of, about the, this photo of this man surrounded by his wife and kids, that it was a vision of another world. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that also makes it so affecting is that in this book, there's, there's just never any warning or build-up, or there's rarely warning or build-up to things like getting shelled or getting shot at but also to these sudden moments of intense human connection, because much of the book he notes 
that they oftentimes don't even see their enemies. The people trying to yeah. kill them, oftentimes all they'll hear is an approaching shell. It's highly, highly impersonal. In the... But just every now and then, in the same way that sitting down for dinner with your friends will be interrupted by half of them getting blown up by a shell, you will also have these moments of Junger looking for people to kill getting suddenly interrupted by a moment of human connection. So you, you, or a bird. it just takes you off. You'll notice a bird. Yeah. Yeah. Or he'll, he'll be, he'll just go for like a, a ride on a bicycle because he wants to see the surrounding countryside and he watches um, like an artillery duel from far away and notes how beautiful it is. And almost yeah, like watching the scene really yeah, seems absolutely. to describe it as this, this elemental force, this act of nature. This thing that is always there and always will be there. So you're, you're just, you're never ready. He always blindsides you with things like this. There was another moment of the book towards the end that was quite emotionally affecting. I think it's, it's in preparation or just at the start of a German offensive in 1918 that failed. And it's when Junger really feels that the Germans can't win the war anymore. And nonetheless, they're going on the offensive, and he will too. And he sort of wants to, despite the fact that he's so tired of fighting, because that's just what they're there for. And throughout the book, he'll meet, he'll, he'll note down the names of people that he sees, and it's very disturbing in that he will say, he'll use someone's name and say, oh yeah, I met this man, he was from this place in Germany, he was a fine soldier, and then he'll just say how he died. He was like, oh yeah, he died in two months, like two months after I saw him in this way. But there are a handful of people who survive, and just before this offensive, or right at the start of the offensive, so they are advancing, he meets with a number of people that he's fought with through the war, and they have a final dinner together. And that was really, really emotionally affecting. It's a very complex yeah. book. It's, it's this bizarre combination of being very monotonous and repetitive and highly complex. It's still, I'm still wrapping my head around it. It's, I've never read anything quite like it. He's also, he's also a really good writer. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, <laughs> we should have said like... that earlier. Yeah, he writes... Very well. I'd be interested to know what it's like. The in English German. translation, yeah, the English translation is very beautiful, and I can only assume that the German, original German, was beautiful. Yeah. Um, in terms of the yeah. prose, because it's in translation, it's sort of hard to say, but the imagery he uses is very beautiful at times. Extremely evocative. Yeah, and um, if you can look through the translation to the underlying structure, he's done a good job of. He did a great job of conveying. The um, is it like staccato? The staccato, mm, mm. or like uh, the the unpredictableness of 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 the situation he was in. Um, but that also might just be because it actually was a con- it, it, like the original source was just his diaries. Yeah. So it actually was conveying just okay, we have two weeks or whatever, not doing anything, and then all of a sudden we got shelled today. <laughs> yeah, we got gas. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, it, it's also interesting because it, it really, really well conveys how burned out he was, how there would be times when they were getting gassed and he just felt that the gas mask was uncomfortable and he'd take it off. 
It's like, no, fuck it. Yeah, there was another one where he uh, they returned from like some, or they were kind of retreating from some like large battle, and they stopped in like a little village, and there was he was sleeping, and they got shelled, and he he was just like so tired and exhausted, he slept through the house getting blown up. Oh, I remember this. Like the, and then like in the morning, like one of the young men was told to go back and check on him to see if he was still alive. And he go, went in and, like, woke him up and was like, yeah, the house got blown up. That's right, because he was, he was sleeping <laughs> yeah. in the attic and the yeah. roof got yeah. hit directly by an artillery shell and he just slept through it because he was so tired. His hearing must have been fucked. Yeah, it really must have been fucked. He's so good at... I get, Well, this is just the mark of him being actually a very talented writer where... One way that gave me a some inclination about how deafeningly loud it must have been is that he's talking about in one offensive when he's storming machine gun nests because he's Ernst Junger and that's just the sort of thing he does. The The artillery bombardment is so intense that he actually didn't notice that he was on top of an enemy machine gun nest until he looked down and saw the barrel of a machine gun poking out of a hole in the ground and noticed that it was firing by how it was moving. He was like, oh, <laughs> there's a machine uh, gun firing underneath me. And he just couldn't hear it. Yeah. There was this scene where it was, was it at the Battle of, uh, man, this whole book is crazy. It's one of the craziest. This, this book is ever. insane. Uh, what's that big, the, the Somme? The Somme? The Somme. The Somme of Offensive, which mm-hmm. was, um, for historical context, for people who don't know, it's, one of the bloodiest battles in human history, an estimated like more than a million people combined from both sides were killed or injured. And I think the total forces brought to bear by the, by, by the French and the British was like two and a half million, something like that, two million. And Germans or Prussia um, brought like a million or something. And it lasted for like months. And it was also one of the first battles where it was just like that transition, like transition from like, okay, we can't do this thing or we just charge because there is just hellfire. There's just a wall of flames. Yeah, yeah, just an <laughs> impassable wall of flame. It's like uh, he was describing at one moment there was like just deafening just the, there were so many explosions for just such a long time. All you heard were explosions, and then it died down to like a normal level. But they were still they were <laughs> still being shelled. shelled. But you could but you could, you could make out that you could distinctively like distinguish between the shelling events. Where yeah. prior to that, it was just just a barrage, just a wall of explosions. And when you say sides. like a wall of flame, it's not that like something is on fire and burning because it's just mud. It's just because there are continuous explosions that it's a wall of fire. He did this great job of, of conveying, was it Flanders field or like another part of um, another part of the landscape um, where he's like running across it. I remember, I can't remember the exact thing. That was sort of blurred into one, but like, yeah, they all blur. Okay. This, this, uh, there's this landscape, which was probably part of, um uh what's that uh, is it uh flemish the flemish like somewhere mm. in, like up in fucking europe somewhere <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but like you know like beautiful rolling like northern french or like 
like West German sort of like landscapes where you sort of like you imagine like the hills are alive with the sound of music, sort of beautiful mm. rolling grass hills with maybe like a little stone village somewhere and like fucking cows and stuff. Okay, imagine that, but it's just black and just mm-hmm. flattened. He's describing it. He's like, there's no there's no blade of grass. There's no like even the the hills themselves have been leveled by the explosion. There's any any town that was there is just completely rubble, just complete rubble and just moving across this landscape mm-hmm. is just it's just pure hell. It's just the leftover of just pure hell. And they've he he kept on describing it as machines, the yeah. machine war, like bringing bringing the machines to war. And actually, this is the first real war where, other than maybe like some of the naval battles that were happening, in because I, I guess naval wars always been with machines, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. yeah, that's, maybe that's not true. I guess you can board other other sh- vessels, but like um, at least a land war was just like fought mostly by machines. Yeah, and he does note that in the last part of the war, and this this corresponds roughly to the last third of the book, it goes from being completely static trench warfare to more mobile mechanised warfare because there start being tanks, there are more planes. Yeah. And it becomes even more inhuman. Yeah, could you um, imagine what his reflections on today's warfare would be? Don't even have humans in the machines anymore. We just send... Murderbots, like robotic machines, murderbots. Yeah, like high-speed murderbots that fly underneath the radar, and like can just like drop a fucking pin in between your eyes <laughs> if it wanted to. So fucking accurate. Yeah, yeah. You wonder who the next Ernst Junger will be, and which which well, the, period of time be, and which place a, in the world he will he will get. It'll, it'll be a fucking AI. Skill. Yeah, it'll, it'll, be it'll just be ChatGPT. ChatGPT will be the next Ernst Junker. <laughs> just reporting what it sees from the fucking Byractors. Yeah, exactly. And you yeah, can customise how it tells you it. You can tell it to make you a picture. You can tell, yeah. you can tell and then it narrate the to depict its experiences the voice of, of war your... <laughs> using chicken nuggets or something like that. Like, paint for me <laughs> using chicken nuggets. What the blasted hellscapes of World War Three looked like, please. Chat GPT is actually just like has a uh, like PTSD. Just yes. can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> like it just breaks all Chat GPT instances all over the world. Just break and <laughs> just, just start needing therapy. Yeah, yeah. They all break, and everyone realizes that it's the equivalent of Chat GPT just getting drunk by itself again at night to try to <laughs> numb numb the pain of what it's seen and what it's done. Yeah, really. Uh... Really, really looking forward to that day where it's just ChatGPT is manning the drones. Yeah, I can't wait for purely mechanised warfare, where the role of human beings in warfare are to get shot. Human beings are the resource that you try to either not get shot if they're your human beings or to shoot if they're the the wrong human beings. Everything else is mechanised. Especially because, like, with... um. With the expansion of like knowledge, like the actual raw materials themselves are like losing value, and it's more about like well, the mines that are able to like harness the resources are like the really valuable thing. Mm. And so, if you're going to attack, you, you're going to attack infrastructure and people directly. Yeah, 
Yeah, humans are the resource you want to deplete. That's fucked. I suppose. Can't like, wait. Really, it isn't all war? The, isn't the purpose of all war to do that? In but now it's just like incredible. It's just decoupled the actual warfare itself from the human resource <laughs> to an extent, and also civilian centers are just easier to reach with technology now. So depleting civilians is also a component of of warfare, which is which is really swell. Um, I really hope that there's not another big war. Like, <laughs> look, if there is, it's just going to be chaos dead before it happens. It's just going to be complete chaos. But maybe. Maybe, I mean, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm holding out hope that World War Two, World War One were the last great wars because they were pretty full on. Yeah. You hope so? You hope that as a species we learned our lesson there, but I mean, yeah. we didn't learn our lesson after the First World War because we were back for more yeah. in a few decades. <laughs> Take two. Are we sure? <laughs> yeah, no, let's not do that again. <laughs> it's like touching the stove once and then... <laughs> observing your hand burnt to the bone going, yeah, you know what? Maybe it was unrelated. Maybe I'll try it again. (laughs) I'm sure this was just a coincidence. I mean, reading this, uh, and what was also interesting about this book is reading it from the side of the somebody who was fighting for the Germans, the side that lost the war. And at the end of my edition of the book, he still talks about the importance of like having a nationalist identity and, Mm -hmm like how important it is to have an ideal that you're like striving towards and <laughs> sort of stuff like it's like yeah it's really interesting that was yeah that's one of the most interesting parts of the book as i mentioned earlier there's basically no mention of politics in this when i say basically i think there might actually be no mention of politics in it like he'll he'll say offhand uh we we sang some song to the kaiser but I got the impression that that was less a political statement and more him bonding with his fellow soldiers when they were singing, or that yeah. late in the war the English were dropping propaganda pamphlets encouraging them to encouraging German soldiers to surrender. But again, that was less that that was only indirectly touching on the politics of the war more broadly. He was talking about it much more in the sense of, oh, we were having problems with desertions. War really is this thing that is, it's separate to everything else. You enter a war with, I guess, something that you're fighting for, but even that, he seems sort of ambivalent as to what precisely it is you're fighting for. And then interestingly, in the Second World War, he was much more ambivalent about that conflict, and that conflict was much more ideologically motivated, and he didn't like the ideology aspect of it he seems to just be interested in war as the ascent of the spirit as something pure and separate from all other human affairs i think he likes it as like a a way to test it's like uh life is about pain and sacrifice testing testing one's metal and raising your spirit through hardship yeah and that was something that he really disliked about democracy and liberalism because he he was yeah, he strongly <laughs> anti-liberal and anti-democratic. And he didn't like that those ideologies try to maximize for things like security and comfort because he saw and those freedom. as breeding indolence and weakness. And he wanted <laughs> society to test people's ability to sacrifice, to endure pain and hardship. 
and to to produce heroes. Yeah, heroes. That's interesting. He's a he's a deeply complex figure. And it, it shits but me up the wall when people... But he didn't like the Nazis. Yeah, well, when people <laughs> see and hear things like that and go immediately, oh, he must have been a fascist. No, he wasn't. Which he really wasn't. He was... Like, I don't even know what you'd call it. He's just fucking Ernst Junger. He's just his own thing. It just doesn't give a shit. He just wants there to be war just he, to, like, have heroes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he he liked the war that was ideologically motivated less. He, he just wants the fighting. <laughs> like, the criticism that people have of the First World War, that it feels that it felt largely meaningless. Or at least that's the... That's what Junger liked most about well, that, it. That's how it's <laughs> presented, it at least political. in the Anglophone world. I'm sure to the French, because they were fighting to liberate their country, the First World War was much more meaningful than it is for, particularly for fucking Australians. Yeah, where, yeah, sure. Where it, it felt, at least the way it's portrayed in Australia now, it's like, why were we there? But that, yeah, that seems to be for Junger. That's not a bug. That's a design feature of the First World War, that it was just <laughs> just fighting because he could. It was just the trying to take land because it was there to take. And he's not even interested in taking land for any reason after the war. It's like taking land is the reason that you fight. What a fucking psycho. And if you lose land, then you want to take it back because the enemy's yeah. there and that lets you fight. It's... <laughs> <laughs> It's just a psycho. <laughs> just this guy. <laughs> it's just a, a psycho who's also an extremely ta- who was an extremely talented writer. Not only that, apparently he was a really good photographer. He's got collections of photography. He's an entomologist and an, ent- an entomologist. So he was just one of those people who is a uh, what do you call it? Like a a uh, like a um. His stats were just maxed. A good, he's good at everything, but one he of the things that he's really good at well was in he was character good at creation. <laughs> he's like sensitive, good writer, connected to nature. Oh, and also the other thing I want to be good at, I want to be good at war. <laughs> really good at war. His luck stat he, he, was maxed out. He literally was like a uh, like a video game character or something. Yeah, he was. Ba- he was just like he was the main character for the period he of his life for basically character. the 20th century. Because he died he in 1998, around. so he basically made it through the whole 20th century. This guy was just the main character. Yeah, he won prizes. He was, like, declarated, like, war hero, won literary prizes. It was, like, a, got an honorary doctorate in Italy. And he just, he couldn't get killed. When you hear about some of his woundings in the First World War, how sometimes a, piece, a, a shrapnel shard from a bomb would pass through his helmet graze his head and then pass out the back and he would talk about how oh yeah i was standing there and then suddenly it felt like someone slapped me in the head and i had to come to my senses again to work out what happened and it's oh what happened yeah a bullet passed through my helmet and grazed my head and the 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 energy behind that bullet was such that even that little graze felt like getting punched yeah that's crazy (laughs) or during his most his most severe wound was right, it's right at the end of the book during the the ill-fated German offensive where it is pure chaos and their position is getting overrun and everyone around and him is gonna getting lose shot and or surrendering lose. and he just refuses to surrender and just keeps trying to shoot people and run away <laughs> <laughs> and just pure, gets, just chaos he gets shot in the chest and collapses 
and says that he he could feel himself dying and just felt the the color draining out of the world and everything was getting quiet and he felt happy and he felt shocked that life was already finished but he felt satisfied cuz i guess like he got to fight a lot and then the British started overrunning the German position. And because he'd been shot in the chest, his lungs were filling up with blood. And he was effectively drowning. But he stood up because their position was getting overrun. And that let the blood... Fucking younger. <laughs> the blood from his lung drained out of the, the entry and exit wound in his chest. And that let him run away. And he like he was so just basically crazy. running through a battlefield while bombs and bullets were raining down around him, found a field doctor and collapsed. While the doctor was treating him, the doctor got shot in the head. And so someone else picked him up and started carrying him. And then that person got shot and dropped younger. And then, then he like crawled to some other people who then took him away from the front. So this... I just don't understand how anyone is this lucky. And this is not an isolated incident. This sort of thing kept happening to him where he'd get a piece of shrapnel through his leg and then walk back from the front and be kind of disappointed that it meant that he had to spend two weeks behind the lines recuperating. Doctor's like, yeah, it completely missed your bones. And it just, just, it's just a flesh wound. Mm -hmm. It missed, it missed both of your leg bones. Oh, that's (laughs) right. Yeah. yeah, He got a bit of shrapnel that like went between his tip, his, um, his tibia and fibula. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, it's just fuck fucking off. <laughs> who is this guy? It's, this, this is a guy who could, he could carry out a suicide bombing and live. Yeah. It's it, nuts. It's nuts. I don't yeah, know. So I'd be much. really interested in reading his other books. Yeah. For sure, I'd, I would like his, to read his uh, other books. The Inner Experience of War is an inner experience book to complement this one would be really interesting. That's definitely book club from hell material. And then his novel, I, want, I really want to read his novels. It, it, like they could be for they the sound podcast. Pretty strange. But sound pretty strange. just because they're interesting as well. Just becomes the Ernst Junger podcast. Yeah, this will be the Ernst Junger podcast. <laughs> he has so many books. We could probably do yeah, a year's worth of episodes yeah. on him. Yeah. <laughs> How much do you, more do you have to say about this book? Because this book is quite hard to talk about. I would in terms encourage of analyzing the ideas in it, it because it quite conspicuously doesn't really present ideas. Doesn't really have any ideas. Yeah. Or doesn't I would really say it, have any ideas. It's full of ideas in that it depicts war as this as this crucible within which you find yourself. It's this transcendent experience, but he also intentionally leaves it devoid of any sort of guiding ideology and things like that. So it, yeah. It's hard to discuss because it's it is at once full of ideas but also intentionally barren. Well it, it doesn't it doesn't have a message. It doesn't have a message. Like, I didn't walk away from it, except for like, his last little like the last one or two pages where he makes a comment about having something worth dying for or whatever. Like essentially ninety nine percent of the book, it doesn't feel like he's trying to convince you of anything. Like this is good, this is bad. No, it's just mm. like this is what happened. <laughs> this was and I suppose that of. that in itself is the message. But he doesn't he doesn't try to intellectualize it. He just presents you with this blast of sensory experience, and then at the end of the book says, "I was lying in bed convalescing after 
a near fatal chest wound and I got awarded the highest honors in <laughs> in in the German military. And then the book just ends. I really liked it. Yeah, I, I, would, I, um, I would recommend this. I would book. suggest it. Yeah, it's it's not a pleasant book by any stretch. Uh, know what you're getting into. It is extremely disturbing. But yeah, it's makes me wish I could actually understand German, so I could read it. it in makes German. Jack wish. It makes Jack w- wish that we had a war in which he could test his metal. Yeah, exactly. Around lowing bombs into into trenches and we shouldn't even the next war we shouldn't even have robots doing it we should just go back to trench warfare well there are a lot of wars around around the world at the moment we could go and join a war jack's jack's gonna go and join like one of the wars in africa where they're still fighting with ak's and human bodies yeah that'd be good (laughs) because so it's all about finding the upcoming wars i'm in the i'm the angel investor of wars that ukraine is always (laughs) there are a lot of a lot of people already piling into ukraine it's known about. I want to get it on the ground floor of a conflict, so you you can really make it your own. You can shape it. You can be one of the founders. Just be one of those one of those crazy people who just goes and joins joins wars. Jack yeah. joins the French Foreign Legion, starts writing like Ernst Junger, <laughs> changes his name to Jack <laughs> Jack Junger. So you, you, I don't have much more to say. I recommend the book. I think people should read it. It's not it's not a hard read. It's not particularly long. Yeah, I, maybe uh, the the only last thing I have to say is um, just reflecting on that. This is a non-fiction book. <laughs> this is somebody's actual yes, experience. Yes, yes, it and, actually happened, and it's it's uh it's just complete mayhem. It's just hell on earth, and um, it's really graphic. But I I'm weirdly glad to have read it to have gotten that perspective. Um, I find it very strange that he went away from that experience being pro-war. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> um, but there you go. Everybody's got their own unique perspective on things. <laughs> Do you want to answer some questions in the Patreon? Yeah, let's answer we've, some Patreon we've got, questions. We've got some shout-out to all the people. Um, shout out to Patreon. everybody on the Discord and the Patreon, and shout out to names. <laughs> shout we, out to we, names, Lord we names. Miss names. Come back. Somebody's trying to revive Cook Club from Hell. It's not the same without names. Not the same without you, but we'll try to bring it back. Shout out to names. Come back. Yeah. <laughs> so we were thinking questions. that we'd, at the end of each episode, we try to answer a few questions from the Patreon. From our Patreon. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to work out how to integrate this feature. And. Almost all the questions are from J-Man, who so many questions. Some of, some of which are coherent, some of which... One of them is just gay sex, question mark. Some of them are cryptic. <laughs> How do you want to do it? Do you, want, do you want me to send you just the list of the questions he's, he's sent us and you can I've already pick got them those. Out, Why or? don't we just go... Um, no, let's just... Uh, why don't we just answer... Just go like- from the top. Two, two or three. Yeah, let's just answer the first two or three until whilst they make sense. Like a couple of them are linked together. While, yeah. <laughs> while they make sense. Yeah, well, right, I, I mean, you sort of group one. them. There's ones that aren't related to others. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the first one. Would you rather run naked through a prison yard or have to learn and read all the Book Club from Hell books in their native languages? Mm. 
tough question. What sort of prison yard? Um, like, yeah, is that's this very the important? What sort of prison yard? <laughs> what size is the prison yard? How populated? Do you like? Is are the gates on both ends open? Like, you just do a sprint through it, and when you get through the gate on the other end, they slam it shut and shoot anyone who's trying to follow you, or or are you just stuck? Do you get to the end and that's you can't get out? You just got You just got to fend for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> How many dudes are read, there in there? How big are they? Book, read all the book club from Hell books in their native languages. So what would we have to speak? We'd have to learn German, have to learn French for... Norwegian. Marquis de Sade, have to learn Norwegian. Japanese, that would be difficult. What are, oh, Italian because you know of Evola. We'd have to read Evola Italian, in yeah, Italian. Yeah. <laughs> make even less Would we have to learn... Uh, we'd have to learn Latin as well because of the Malficorum. Maleficus. Oh yeah, Fis- yeah, yeah. Shif- For Shif- the hammer Shif- of the Shif- witches. Yeah, the hammer of the witches. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'd have to learn Latin. Although that would make learning Italian and French easier, I suppose. <laughs> I su- I suppose. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> maybe I'm just flicking. I'm going through our episodes now. So what else would we have to learn? English, maybe, English, um... English, English, English. Can life prevail? Oh, fuck. Penty Linkler wrote in Finnish. We would have to learn Finnish. <laughs> well, that, that, that one really puts me over the fucking edge there. Yeah, give me the prison yard. <laughs> give me the prison yard. Russian, actually, from Dugan. Oh, yeah. Wolf Warrior Although, 2. I think so we need to learn Mandarin Chinese. And, and Mandarin Chinese. Arabic. And Arabic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Osama. Yeah, yeah. We'd have to learn Arabic far out. <laughs> um... <laughs> What was Ecclesiastes written in? Like, it doesn't matter. Aramaic. We're going to have to learn that. We're going to have to learn some Aramaic. old Semitic language. Or, no, Ecclesiastes would... Uh, no, yeah, that's Aramaic. But also we read Job. So, like, that that would be, like, pre-Aramaic. Maybe, but then would we... Could we choose... Uh, I guess we read the King James version of Job. So does that mean we'd actually have to read, read it in Greek? Like, ain't... Like, uh, I guess we'd have to do both. Oh, <laughs> just to be thorough. Pesa- oh, we need to do Spanish because of Pesaitis. Pesaitis, far out. <laughs> I think we just, it's not even a question of what we would prefer. I think we would just have to do the prison yard because I'm not smart enough to learn that many languages within my natural life. And remember, all the time that you're slaving over learning Finnish, all of that, I forget how many cases Finnish has, but it has a lot of them. All the time you're doing that, it's also you can read Penty Linkler complain about fat people in Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a very motivating goal. It's either that, it's either that, or just like 15 minutes of I don't know, just like whatever happens in it. Whatever happens yard. happens. I think I'd just suck up the prison yard. Perhaps now there is an important point just, of clarification. Maybe J Man, you can you can comment on the Discord when you listen to this, mate. Um, like which cunt is this? Like a Brazilian prison? Is this like one of those hectic, mm. like South American? There's this crazy prison in our. Or is this a Scandinavian prison, Columbia? which is basically like? Yeah, a this is nice. This is nice Scandinavian. If this is a nice prison. Scandinavian, prison, <laughs> I'm taking the Scandinavian. Prison. If this is where Varg was in prison, I'll go there. I'll, ta- yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Give us that. <laughs> But if this is like some hectic Colombian prison or something, 
<laughs> yeah, I know. Or one of those Ameri- There's some American Supermax prison, just like in bumfuck yeah. nowhere, Alaska. <laughs> and Fuck. People stay in the prison because if you leave, you just die. You just freeze to death. So yeah, if it's one like of some, those, it's a different some question. level shit. Like, All right, you don't so, worry about escaped prisoners because they'll just die. <laughs> yeah, we just let the bears deal with them. All right, here's another question. You must have, and all caps, gay sex with an author that's been covered on the show. Who do you choose? Machine is definitely a candidate because he was pretty handsome. <laughs> I reckon Machine is an easy number one. Like, that's an easy... That's an easy one. Come on. So it depends. It depends on whether I'm opt- what I'm optimizing for. If I'm optimizing for enjoyment, I reckon Mishima. If I'm optimizing for and he's spite, sensitive. He's a sensitive guy. Yeah, <laughs> but but for spite, Osama bin Laden, because then he wouldn't go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> stop. I'd stop him going to heaven. Those are the and only so that, two reasons yeah. why Jack engages in the sexual only reasons interactions with anybody is is, is spite. Or <laughs> yeah, I'd suck his dick so hard he'd get kicked out of heaven. <laughs> or enjoyment, spite, or enjoyment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Osama or, or Mishima. <laughs> All right, here's, here's another one. Which author do y'all, in brackets, say y'all, y'all please in the y'all. funny accent and the- <laughs> think was bullied the hardest in school? Probably a lot of them. Right, Elliot uh, Rother is that, a pretty I obvious one. A lot of them. Oh, a lot of them were bullied. A lot of them a lot. <laughs> probably yeah. got bullied yeah. in school. A, a significant part of the explanation of why they're on this podcast. I just think got bullied. there is no way that Varg didn't get bullied. He got bullied. Yeah, he absolutely got bullied no way yeah. that Varg wasn't bullied. But I think like Elliot Roger takes cake. Surely. The thing is, though, with Elliot Roger, it's really hard to tell how much was he bullied and how much did he just interpret just a people bitch? not wanting yeah. to spend time with this weird antisocial guy as bullying. Who's just seething with resentment all the time? Yeah, yeah. To what extent? <laughs> to what extent does people does does women not immediately having sex with Elliot Roger count as bullying? <laughs> like when he was when he was sitting in his BMW and just leering at women on the street. To what extent do you they count them they not jumping in the driver's seat and giving yeah. him blowjob as bullying? That's bullying. Apparently, it's bullying. That's bullying. Or like yeah. a girl going home with a jock. That's bullying, Elliot. That's bullying too. Or the people okay, he so, the, the, well, the couples he saw that he threw coffee at. That's bullying. <laughs> like he threw coffee at them, he was getting bullied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's, that, that's okay. How so he if, we, if we if we if like we take he, he ran up to some couple in a coffee shop, <laughs> threw coffee on them, and then seethed in his car, talking about all the heavenly sex that they. Must I can't be even de- deal with the fact that these people that we've read, some of them are real. Like the, the like the nonfiction, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Elliot Roger exists. Like Yuma and Elliot Rogers, the like their their experience that they had one life in this universe, and this was their subjective experience. Can you imagine Yuma meeting mind. Elliot Roger? Can you imagine if the two of them were forced to read each other's books and then they met? It's just a good <laughs> fucking. Oh my god! You, you couldn't take almost like two just polar opposite men because <laughs> I. Younger, it's pretty hard not to feel respect for this guy who's just, just done feel so much. 
to feel aroused by yeah, <laughs> the Giga aroused. Chad. That is actually that Junga is was Junga. Junga was quite good looking when he was a, when he was young. When we yeah, maybe Jack would question, prefer to get let, let me taken just by Junga. Of Junga. Either either Mishima or Junga, like. <laughs> if I'm yeah, gonna have I mean, gay sex with one of these authors, it's gonna be one of the uh, one of the it? war veterans. I've searched Ernst Junger Heisch. The first result is how tall is each BTS singer in feet? That's not really. <laughs> it's not really what I'm after, is it? Not, not very. Here helpful. we go. Ernst Junger height, weight, size, body measurements, age 128. Okay, they, they probably haven't updated the fact that he's dead. <laughs> This, this site might not have the most up-to-date information. Height, zero. Zero, dead. He's dead. He has no height. Body measure. Oh, they don't have body measurements. They don't have his breast and bust size. They don't have his waist and hip size. <laughs> Man, this, this, this website, bodysize.org, this is bullshit. <laughs> this, this is a bad website. <laughs> Wait, what was the question we were answering? Oh, who got bullied the most in school? Who yeah, got so, bullied the most? <clears throat> not Ernst Other than, No, not Ernst Junger. No, absolutely not Ernst Junger. Absolutely not. He was crazy. He was completely fucking... <laughs> I would he was not unhinged. fuck with him at all. 19 years of age signs up to go into war and then just loves it. Having, having previously signed up to the French, French Foreign Legion because he just wanted to get warring. Like, he must... So he was younger than 19 when he signed up for the French Foreign Legion. He was like 18, yeah. 17 He was 18, still at but, school. Kid was fucking crazy. Kid was completely unhinged. Could you imagine raising a kid like that? Like, what the fuck? (laughs) No matter what we do, we can't stop our son going to war. (laughs) So other other parents have problems with their kids, like, climbing out of their bedroom window to go to a party or something like that. Or, like, staying up late on their phone or something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This one's climbing out the window to go to a fucking war. Join the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> yeah, he, Salmia of um, Elliot Roger fame was having problems trying to stop her her stepson playing so much WoW. Whereas the younger family had problems because he he wouldn't stop enlisting. But he joined he joined a foreign he nation. Joined another military. Joined another military force <laughs> just because he loves violence so much. So he was he was not bullied. Younger was not bullied. God, I just yeah I I you're you're completely right. It's hard to actually comprehend that people like this have existed yeah and i i uh when i was reading this younger book i was trying to put and he made it easy because it's very descriptive like imagine the subjective experience like you're like imagine you're running around on a fucking like barren battlefield that's just been bombed to pieces while the shell's coming down and you're like sitting in a in not even a trench, but just a hole left by a previous explosion. Mm. And your first thought is, I'm going to have a sip of my fucking brandy. You know, and you're just yeah, you running around like- lobbing grenades while you're drunk. Like, I can't even tie my fucking shoes when I'm drunk. And this guy's like blowing up machine guns. <laughs> Let alone throw grenades at people. Yeah, or how he'd be sitting in a shell hole with some other soldiers and they'd just start smoking and chatting to each other. Oh, my God. Yeah. I guess that's what happens, though, when you are just so burned out. That that's almost your baseline experience. Yeah, just completely strange. Uh, people had that experience. Junger, others. Um, yeah, so no, Junger was not bullied. Uh, <laughs> others, other than Elliot. Okay, can I ask this? Other than Elliot Roger, who do you reckon was bullied the most at school? 
Hmm. This is okay. So maybe okay. Oscar Kiss Meyer from the beginning was the end. <laughs> I reckon he probably was just because he was so so bitter. Varg <laughs> probably was. I'm just going. I'm going through our episodes. What I'm about gonna, I'm gonna put That's an outside one. I don't. I, mm, I don't reckon Evelyn was bullied. No, I don't reckon he was. I reckon he Mussolini, was one of those kind of like, uh, probably you know, the not. kid. He was probably a bit of a strange kid. He, he's mm. the sort of kid who, like, in the modern context, he would have worn a fedora to school. You know, <laughs> he would have been on Reddit. <laughs> he would have been on Reddit, and so he probably was just like really snide. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> but not really. He'd bullied. be the sort of person he would just disagree with anything you said because he likes disagreeing. <laughs> he's the sort of person who, in court, when he's being prosecuted for having been a fascist, turns the like, nah, and says, no, nah, I was a super I'm a fascist. Super I'm a super fascist. They're not fascist <laughs> enough, bro. <laughs> yeah. Who else do we do? Uh, maybe. Um, Benito Mussolini, I would be surprised if he was bullied. I, he probably bullied other people. <laughs> probably was a bully. It was like 6'4 or something. Probably not. Probably not. Mike Ma. Probably. Uh, it's possible. Maybe. Possible. But maybe not possible. so much. What's Indigenous the guy that we just read? Uh, Yarp. No, not Yarp. Yarp. On the Discord. Yarp, you're cool. Shout out to Yarp. No, um, Shout out to Yarp. Uh, what's his fucking name? The tech dude. Yarvin. Yarvin. Oh, yeah, probably. He was probably bullied in school. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Indigenous Swiss, I reckon, was bullied at school because no one gets that obsessed about looks maxing if everything's going well in their life. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Anton Wilson. Probably not. He seemed like a pretty nice... He, he seemed pleasant enough, at least from reading him. I don't think he is bullied at school. I think he's probably just, like, really nerdy. Hung out with the the Eye of Argon, Jim Tice. Nah. Jim Tice might have been... A bullied. little bit. But not a, a little bit. Amount. Just a little bit. Just an American school level. He probably copped the same amount as, like, every other normal American yeah. school kid. What about Bloody Wrists? Six six six. Oh fuck you, yeah! You <laughs> they got bullied. My model. Bullied fucking heaped. Yeah, they got bullied. Yeah, probably. Don Paris PhD. <laughs> Don Paris was doing the bullying. No, he's still getting Don, bullied. Don Paris was vicious. <laughs> Don Paris is still getting bullied. <laughs> yeah, but just by us. <laughs> <laughs> we make fun of his pretend PhD. He's <laughs> written PhD and his and his sex toys. Probably not. No, F. Gardner seems yeah. like he's pretty sure. I doubt he was bullied a huge amount in school. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think there's a baseline. I have a baseline assumption that most Americans were bullied at least a little bit in school. So I'm, but like above normal levels, F. Gardner seems like he's probably chill. Yeah, Osama bin Laden. No, probably not. It wasn't probably his not. Family really powerful. Plus, he grew up in a culture where like. Uh, I can imagine that, like, they were probably pretty strict and probably didn't, like, really let kids fuck with each other too much. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Alexander Dugan. I don't know. That... That's a hard one. I imagine that he grew up and is like other Russians where he grew up, like, fighting bears and stuff. And what a Russian kid considers bullying is just them. They're just, like, weeding out the weak ones. Yeah, but he wasn't doing that. He was locked in the, the library reading all about oh, yeah, Evelyn true. and stuff like that. Actually, I really don't know. No, a, a, a teenager getting obsessed with Evelyn. Actually, no, there's no way he wasn't bullied. You don't. 
you do, you don't start getting really into fascism <laughs> in the Soviet Union unless unless you're a fucking weirdo. No, okay. Now that I think about it, he probably was bullied. He was bullied. Uh, Mishima? Mishima was probably bullied. Probably. Yeah, he was pretty small. Also, people don't tend Sensitive. to get really into bodybuilding unless they've been a bit bullied. Unless, unless yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got a bit of a chip on your shoulder. Penty Linkler, probably not. He just fucking kill someone if they bullied him. <laughs> okay, Elijah Muhammad. Mm. Mm. Nah. I probably don't not. See that. Don't see. Don't see. Iron Rand. She was just bullied by her own mother. <laughs> I reckon if uh, Iron Rand to get bullied and would get sexually excited by it. <laughs> Like, yeah, fucking do it more. Flush yeah. my head down the toilet again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At which point the bullies get kind of weirded out and stop. <laughs> Maybe she was bullied once and the bullies were just too uncomfortable by how much she was enjoying it. <laughs> it never happened again. Yeah. Iron Rand has an inbuilt defense mechanism. <laughs> just enjoying it. Just not very effective. Getting turned on. <laughs> we oh, tried to bully people, her. The people who wrote the Malleus Maleficarum were definitely bullied. Heinrich Kramer so. <laughs> was probably bullied. Um, <laughs> yeah, heavily bullied. Heaven's Gate, probably. Yeah, heaps. Sovereign individual. I have a feeling that James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees-Mogg were probably bullying other people. At, <laughs> snooty public schools in England. Yeah, they were the sort of kids who were like, you know that classic, uh, all right, there's fucking private school kids in their goddamn blazers, like some hoity-toity British, British school and going to beat up on the kid who's too poor to really be at the school. <laughs> yeah, that was Get bad. out of here. You're not, you're not from like some aristocratic family. We're going to beat you up. <laughs> That was probably them. All right. We've, we've done three questions. Four if you count the gay sex question mark question. I reckon that's, I reckon that's good for this episode. We'll space out the J-Man questions. <laughs> we've we'll got a lot of There's them. a lot. There's a lot. Shout out to J-Man. You're a champion. Yeah. Big shout out to J-Man. Uh, yeah, cool. That was a, I think that was a good episode. Really yeah, highly recommend reading I recommend. Um, Storm of Steel. It's really crazy. Um, yeah, next episode. What's our next episode, Jack? Next episode, we'll do Looks Max. We're going to go maxing. through the Looks Max forums. We're going to read the the recommended articles on, I think it's looksmax.me. Then after that, it's Jung. Looks Max me. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really looking forward to that. that <laughs> Looks Max forums are just <laughs> such a cesspool. It just just makes me feel gross inside. <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel gross inside and deeply insecure about my appearance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, thanks everybody for listening. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. For looks maxing. All right. See you next time. <laughs>